You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. It's hard for me to believe, um, to think about that I started seminary 25 years ago, uh, come this August. And, uh, but one of the big discussions at that time, and, and when I started seminary, um, 97, um, was uh, worship wars that were taking place in the church. And uh, the very combination of those words were intriguing to me and already began to see some of that in places that I had been serving and in. But uh, the idea of, of worship and, and war going into kind of the same thing was a bit, uh, a bit uh, concerning. And it was also the time when I remember I started to hear adjectives uh, that were or modifiers that were added to worship. When I grew up, we would just go to worship. And then all of a sudden, I begin to hear, um, well, is it a traditional worship, or is it a contemporary worship, or is it a, a seeker-sensitive or a seeker-driven worship or, or, or blended worship? And we had all of these adjectives and modifiers that, that started to come out. And, and, and so there was a great deal, really, of, of, of confusion, I think, and contention uh, in, in many of the, the churches. Um, Dr. Moeller addressed this topic in, in chapel in 1998, about a year after I'd been to seminary. And uh, he noted in one sense that there's always been kind of a war on worship, uh, all the way back to uh, Genesis 4. You think about the very first murder in the Bible, um, where Cain murdered his brother Abel, was, uh, was over what was an acceptable sacrifice to offer the Lord. And uh, they had a, a very different opinion about that. Um, they saw that issue differently. What is worship? And, and why is it uh, important? One of the schools of thought that came about at that time uh, arose from the church growth movement that was going on that began around uh, the early 90s and perhaps even before um, but, but one of the, the things of the church growth movement was you see everything through the lens of growing numerically. And so worship, I remember a lot of people talking, was about how can we reach the most people? What kind of worship service can we have that would reach the most people? I had a conversation with a deacon one time about music, and, and he asked me, he says, well, if we don't reach them with contemporary music, then what are we going to reach them with? And, and the question was very, very telling. My, my response was, well, I hope it's the gospel. Um, but you can hear the thought process of that, can't you? It was A.W. Tozer who wrote, uh, even before he saw some of these things coming uh, de several decades ago, when he wrote this, he said, uh, it is now common practice in evangelical churches to offer people, especially young people, a maximum of entertainment and a minimum of serious instruction. It is scarcely possible, he writes, in most places to get anyone to attend the meeting where the only attraction is God. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with Him. For they must be wooed to meeting with a stick of striped candy in the form of religious movies, games, and refreshments. That was years ago that he wrote that. And, and yet, 
we see that, unfortunately, even today can continuing. There was another school of thought about worship, not just reaching what can reach the most people, but, but that worship is, is, is something that is a means to get us to the sermon. I kind of chuckled when I read this, so keep a light heart. But one writer explained it like this. Worship is like a car. That should have been a red flag right there. Worship is like a car uh, to get us from where we are to where God wants us to be. Transportation and communication are imperative. Some worship God in cathedrals with the rich tradition of organ tones and classical music. They travel in a Mercedes-Benz. Some worship God in simple wooden churches with a steeple pointed heavenward. They sing gospel songs of Charles Wesley and Fanny Crosby, and they travel in a Ford or a Chevy. Uh, some worship God with contemporary sounds of praise music with a gentle beat. They travel in a convertible sports car. And some worship God to the whine of a guitar and the amplifiers to the max, and they travel on a motorcycle without a muffler. Surely, surely there's something more to worship than, than uh, can, can we honestly read the Scripture and, and conclude that worship is like a car to get us somewhere, or that it is uh, a means by which God wants to draw crowds of people to come? Isn't there something a bit more weightier about worship than these things. I know that in this room, there are many opinions about what worship should and shouldn't be. Um, and, and it seems to me, though, that so often the most important question is, is missed as we're talking about worship. How does God define worship? What does He want from us in worship? Don't you think that's the most important question today? This is where a text like Isaiah 6 is so helpful to us, I think, because you might say it's a picture of authentic worship. Now, it's not the whole picture. It doesn't tell us everything about worship, but, but it does point us to some really crucial things about worship um, that, that, that need to be uh, in, in the important uh, category. Uh, first of all, it reminds us that uh, God cares about how we worship Him. You may not have thought of that, but I, I think it's true, and I think it's more than just a mere historical note when we read in verse 1 that in the year that King Uzziah died. Why is he telling us this? The, the Old Testament tells us a lot about uh, King Uzziah. He was a very effective king of Judah. Remember, there was the divided nation of Israel and Judah Uzziah was over Judah. He was very effective. He, he reigned for some 52 years, which if you've read Kings, that's an incredibly long time. Uh, and he was effective in the sense that he uh, secured the, the country from its enemies. He, he, and, and so he presided over a period of peace and stability, prosperity. But then toward the end of his reign, there's some decline that begins to happen, and there's some other nations that are rising to, to power. And so there was a sense here when, that when King Uzziah died historically that there was a lot of uncertainty, that there was a measure of security that was being lost, a stability. What's going to happen now? But the truth is that the, 
the decline that Judah experienced uh, was uh, more spiritual than it was material. Uh, Though the nation had been doing well, the book of Isaiah, if you've read any of that before, you know that the worship during this time was notoriously superficial. I know you will remember this statement. Jesus quoted Isaiah later on when he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. A shallow worship. There, there, were, there was a spiritual decline going on. People were going through the motions. They were singing. They were uh, honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. In fact, in chapter 5, if you look back at that maybe sometime this afternoon. Um, Isaiah calls down about half a dozen curses on Judah uh, because of their spiritual decline. It wasn't external forces that led to Judah's demise. It was spiritual. And that was also true of Uzziah. Fascinating story that we read in 2 Chronicles 26 that explains it so well. This is speaking of King Uzziah. Listen to what it says. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Right there, we see that Uzziah got into trouble precisely over the issue of worship. Verse 17, as Azariah the priest went in after him, with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah, and they said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. That wasn't what happened, though. Verse 19, then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out in his forehead, on his forehead, in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the chief priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they rushed him out quickly. And he turned himself, hurried to go out, because the the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. Think of that. In the year King Uzziah died, what is it telling us? The Lord struck Uzziah with leprosy because in his pride he Uh, assumed an activity and worship that the Lord had only reserved for the priests. You might think, well, that's kind of a minor thing. Well, apparently it wasn't. He wanted to worship God the way that he wanted to worship God rather than how God had prescribed it. Now, if that were just one story, we might say, well, you know, that's one story. It's an Old Testament story. That would be concerning. But the fact that there are several stories like this in the Bible. Think about a couple of characters uh, named Abihu and Nadab. They were, they were the sons of Aaron, the high priest. They were priests themselves. And they were killed by God in 
because they authored unauthorized fire before the Lord. Listen to this, Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, and they put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he, God, had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, there was a man named Uzzah, not to be confused with Uzziah, but Uzzah. He was killed instantly one time when he just reached out because the ark of the Lord was getting ready to fall over, and he took his hand to reach out and, and just to keep it from touching the ground, and he was killed instantly by God. And then in the New Testament, there was Ananias and Sapphira, you remember, uh, that died in a worship service because they lied to the church leadership. And so here's Uzziah. And so when you read this and you pause and you think about what is being said, the year King Uzziah died, it turns out that God does have an opinion about worship. And uh, he's a consuming fire, the Bible says. People have died while trying to worship him. And so it's important for us, I think it's important to us, you, hopefully you would agree to us, that we should be very mindful of our worship and we should turn to the Lord and His Word for instruction on this. Uh, and there's only one place to do that, right? And it's His, it's His Word. Amen? And uh, so we don't find in the Bible, as we study worship, and, and it would be a, too long, be a long study, but we don't find an exact order of worship or exact listing of songs that we sing and shouldn't sing and whatever and those kinds of things. But, but we do find uh, patterns in the Bible. We find priorities in the Bible, values. We, we see things, principles like that that should guide our worship today. And uh, we would do well to focus on these, I think, rather than our own preferences and likes. So we look to His Word. So here's the central point today. I know it's point two, but it's really the main point. Worship begins with a true vision of God. Worship begins with a true vision of God. This is a starting place. This is the, just should be the beginning of any discussion about worship. It's about God. Amen? In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah says. Authentic worship, whatever else we call it, however else we describe it, however else we prefer it, it always begins with a revelation of God. He, he is at the center. He is at the focus. He is the object of our worship. Now, now chances are we're not going to experience any vision like Isaiah did here, uh, which would be truly awesome, uh, but I I'm, I'm think that's going to be what heaven is going to be like when we're going to see him like that. But, but this is why that we get glimpses of this in the Scriptures, to help us to have a vision of who this God is that we're worshiping. John Stott, I really like his definition of worship. I think we can have that on the screen. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who He is and what He has done. The worship of God is evoked, it's informed, inspired by the vision of God. The true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. Notice that. Worship begins 
with the revelation of God in scriptures and in Christ. It begins with that vision of Him, and it is worship is a response to who God is. It's evoked by God, it says. It's informed by the Scriptures where God reveals Himself. And so part of the reason we have Isaiah vision recorded for us here is that we would see the Lord and, and know who He is because He's revealing Himself through His Word so that we can know this God that we're worshiping and respond to Him appropriately in worship. Notice what some things that Isaiah's vision teaches us about God. First, the sovereignty of God. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, he says, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is is clearly symbolism of a king, isn't it? One who is ruling and judging his people in power, in righteousness. And, and, and it's a great reminder here to Isaiah and to the people that Israel's ultimate king was not Uzziah. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. And their security and their salvation and their prosperity, their blessing was not found. It was not going to be found in earthly kings, but in the sovereign king of the universe, Yahweh. The same is true today, church. Amen? He's the true sovereign. He's the one that's high and lifted up, it says. And and such a king requires our submission to him. We haven't even started talking about Isaiah's response yet, but already this revelation of God right here is demanding from us a response. It's requiring it right from the beginning. Worship, what is it? It is humbling yourself. It is submitting yourself to God who is the king, the sovereign king. It's acknowledging that you are not God. And I am not God. He is God. And I must reorient my life around Him as the sovereign God. Notice Isaiah's vision of the Lord highlights His holiness. His holiness. Above Him, in this vision, stood the seraphim. And each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Who are these creatures, the seraphim? This is the only time they're mentioned in the, in the Bible um, by this name. The name means burning ones. Burning ones with fire. Uh, there, there's some, clearly some kind of angelic beings. And they've been created by God to worship Him. And notice the the description of them, again, which is symbolic. They had two wings that covered their faces and their feet, right? Two on their face, two on their feet. From head to toe, they're covered. They're covered by these wings. And then they had a set of of flings, how about that, wings to fly, to serve the Lord. But the emphasis is on covering themselves. Why? Why are they having to cover themselves? Because this is a holy God. They can't even look upon Him. They have to hide their faces from their head to their toe. They're they're covered. Think, Think of that. What's amazing to me about it is that these beings are in themselves 
uh, holy in the sense that God has created them for the purpose of worshiping Him. They're, they don't have the capability anymore to sin. They're unable to sin. And, but, but the Lord is so holy that not even these created holy beings are able to look at Him. This God is, is separate not only in His holiness from evil, but, but from every other created being in the universe. He is God above all. Their worship, notice, is that they're calling to one another, holy, 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 over and over again. That is the way uh, he, the Hebrew Bible is uh, uh, basically saying that God is most holy. Three times holy, most holy, no one else is holy in this sense. It's a turn of phrase, holy, 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 that we don't read again until Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And it may be, it seems to be describing the same creatures here. It says, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, right, from Isaiah, full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's worth noting that these angelic beings are not shouting love, 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 though God is love, right? That they are not shouting truth, 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 though very much God is truth. But what they are calling out is holy, holy, holy. This is an attribute of God that is elevated to the superlative degree. God is not merely holy as others would be holy. He is the single most holiest being in the entire universe. Everything about God is holy. There's J.I. Piker who said, I think correctly, this is his attribute of attributes. All of the other attributes of God God's holiness defines them all. His love is holy. God's love, God's mercy is holy. God's justice is holy. Everything He does and is is marked by absolute holiness. And this holiness, notice He is robed in splendor and majesty. Moses rejoiced in the, he called it the majestic holiness of God. Exodus chapter 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? Majestic means glorious. God's holiness literally adorns Him with, with majesty. In Bible times, the greatness of a king was often revealed by the length of his robe. And notice here, God's robe fills the entire throne room in heaven. He's so great. Steve Lawson writes, To capture a vision of God in His stately holiness is always stunning. To behold Him in His majesty is breathtaking. Think about what you're reading here. Think about these words. These angels that are surrounding the throne and crying out day and night, ceaselessly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are worshiping Him around the clock every moment of their, their existence. And, and ask yourself this question. Think about this. What kind of God do we serve who can so totally empty 
these angels of all self, any self-interest that they might have, and hold them in complete attention and worship for all eternity. God is much greater and bigger than we can imagine. Amen, church? This is the greatness of God. Sometimes we have trouble worshiping God for an hour on Sundays. It would seem that, that God is so incredibly absorbing, so uniquely satisfying, so transcendent, so beautiful and wonderful in His being that those in heaven give no thought to themselves whatsoever, only to God. They're content to ceaselessly and joyfully offer themselves to worship to God. This is uh, an amazing picture of God. That's how great He is. And, of course, no wonder Isaiah reminds us at the end of verse 3 that the whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth. This is Psalm 19 that we talked about on Wednesday night. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Literally, it cannot contain the majestic holiness and glory of our sovereign God. This is an incredible picture of worship. You guys are awake, aren't you? It's an incredible picture of worship. These beings see the Lord of glory. They're crying out to one another what they are seeing. Right? God is in their presence, and He's revealing Himself to them, and they're responding to Him in worship to what they're seeing. And it's as if they're saying uh, with the psalmist, proclaim the, the greatness, proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt His name together. It's a beautiful picture of worship, and even corporate worship. What does this teach us today about this? It, 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 it teaches us that worship always begins with the greatness of God, doesn't it? With how He's revealed Himself. From, and, and the worship of my heart, whatever form that it's taking with praying or singing or whatever it is, it is flowing from my response to the greatness of God. Worship is, is, is the people of God gathering together to confess uh, their worship to God, their uh, God's worthness, if you will, how great and worthy He is. That's what we're here to do. I think it's really important that we begin here when we talk about worship. Amongst all of the other conversations, so much of our time in worship is spent focusing on, on the music or, or the style or those things, and it's not that those things aren't unimportant or they don't have any biblical principles or bearings, but, but they're not the first thing. Worship has nothing to do with your or my preferences and style. And, and we, we have to keep reminding ourselves that it always begins with the revelation of who God is, His character. His beauty, that's what we're responding to. I'm pretty sure, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure that when we get to heaven, there's not going to be a 9.30 contemporary service, an 11 o'clock traditional service, and then, you know, at, at, at 12, we're going to do a modern service, and at 1, we're going to have a Bill Gaither-only-led service, and then, you know, at, at 2 o'clock, we'll have a Keith Getty-led-only worship service. I don't think that's what it's going to be in heaven. 
Nor do I think, and I, this is, I haven't been. I hope I'm praying to go. I'm trusting the Lord to go. Um, but nor do I think that when we get there, we're going to be worried about whether Gabriel is playing an acoustic or an electric harp. I, I just cannot see that anybody's going to be whispering to themselves and wondering that because of the revelation of God in our midst is going to be so great. We'll be focusing on His majesty and holiness and greatness. Amen? I shared this quote from Tozer in a sermon about a year and a half ago, um, but I don't think you remember it, so I think it's safe to tell you again. Uh, again, from Tozer on worship. He says, in my opinion, the greatest single need of the moment is that lighthearted, superficial religionist be struck down with a vision of God, high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. The greatest need of the moment. He says, the holy art of worship seems to have passed away like the Shekinah glory from the tabernacle. And as a result, we're left to our own devices and we're forced to make up the lack of spontaneous worship by bringing in countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of the church people. He went on to say, and I agree with this, and I, I think I quoted this as well in that message, that people are not starved for the greatness of our music. They are starved for the greatness of God. And that's not a shot at music. I want the music to be great too. But that's not what we're starved for. It's the greatness of God. We need to recover the biblical vision of who God is and all of His majesty and holiness. Now, I'm running out of time, but I've got a few more minutes, okay? So bear with me. Uh, this is one of the reasons we begin our corporate worship services, our gatherings, with a call to worship from the Bible. Why do we do that? We, just, we didn't just make that up and think that would be a neat idea. It's not just formality, but it's because we recognize that worship is our response to the revelation of God and His Word. And if it's a response, then we always need to begin with a word from God. Amen? That's what drives our worship. Revelation and response. And it's a pattern that we see throughout uh, the Bible. We see it here in Isaiah 6. We see it in other descriptions of worship as well. And so we don't, we don't begin the worship services by thinking, what is it that we can sing that would put everybody in a really good mood? Or what is it that we could sing that would be really lively and wake everybody up because they're really sleepy and tired because they stayed up too late on Saturday night? But rather, we, we come, we're thinking about, well, what, what is it? Can we begin with the Word and, and how we should respond to that Word and then flows from that singing and praying, giving and preaching? It's why we often use the Psalms, the songbook, in the Old Testament to help us in this. A text like Psalm 95, which is one of my favorites about worship. It's a call to worship. That's what, it's, that's what it is. Psalm 95. Listen to this. And, and, and it's meant to be not just to God, but to one another. You can hear it. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. You know, if, if I would put my interpretation on that, it would be like saying, uh, when we get here and we read this psalm, we'd be saying to one another, hey, uh, wake up over there. Uh, this is why we're here today. Hey, you over there with your head down. Hey, pick, lift your head up because we're here to worship God today. 
the great God of, of our universe. We're reminding ourselves, we did not come in here. This is not about us. It's about Him. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let's make joyful noises to Him with songs of praise. Here it is. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. Heights of the mountain are His also. The sea is His, for He made it. His hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And we're the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hands. So we begin our corporate worship by reminding ourselves of this. And we need to remind ourselves of this. Amen? Come on now. Why won't they sing my favorite song today? No, that's not why you came. We want to remind ourselves, we want to remind everyone who comes to our gathering, whether they're saved or whether they're lost, that we have gathered together today for the purpose of worshiping the God of the universe, our maker, our judge, our savior. We've come to praise him. Matt Merkel, in his little book, Corporate Worship, notes that there should be a sense of gravity that characterizes our worship. Gravity, weightiness, weightiness. Sure, there's a time for gladness and joy and worship. That's wonderful. But there should also be reverence, fear, awe. He has this quote in his book, Merkel writes, Approaching the living God is like gazing in awe at the height of Mount Everest, not wandering into a video arcade. The church, he goes on, gathers to hear and behold the glorious one, the one who stands above the entire universe. God gathers us together to glorify himself. And so the call to worship just sets the expectation of that from the very beginning. Here's what we're reminding ourselves. We have come today to give, not to receive. That's worship. We've come to offer praise to God, not criticism. We've come to give worship to God, not to receive for ourselves. Of course, we we do receive from ourselves when we're in the presence of God. Amen? We're not saying that, but our mindset from the very beginning is that we're coming to give worship to God. Or or if you you think of it another way, worship is something that we do, not something that we attend. You didn't come to attend today. You come to give, to worship God, to, to respond to Him, to humble yourself, to confess your sin, to give glory to Him, to commit yourself to Him. We've come to do something today, not to watch something. And so let's make sure, church, that that's our expectation for our gatherings. That's what we're anticipating. That's why we're here. Because the moment that we forget that, let's be honest, the moment that we forget that, it goes, the worship goes it, off the rails, doesn't it? It runs aground. Because you can't worship God and be concerned for yourself at the same time. And so we need to remind ourselves of that. Also want to encourage you in closing to give yourself to study in God's Word. If you want to recover a vision of God, a biblical vision of God that will move you to worship Him, that will want you to respond to Him, and we need to give ourselves to theology. To theology. 
One of the reasons that our worship is so anemic is because we have thought very little and read very little of God's Word during the week. And it's been all about us, and then we come in and we're still struggling with the fact that it's all about us and we're disappointed. Remember the picture. God is so incredibly... This is the truth. He's so incredibly absorbing and uniquely satisfying and transcendent and glorious that these angels can do nothing but give themselves over to worship God with no thought to themselves. If that's what they know about God, don't you think that we have some more to learn about Him? And so I would say these things to you in love, and they are in love, but if you want to grow in your worship, then throw away your Jesus Calling devotional book and throw your open windows out the open window. Maybe not. They're kind of expensive. But, but what I'm saying is, is that you're, at some point you, you need to lay aside some of the popular and often shallow devotional materials. There's so much written about you and you need to Set your minds toward the God of the Scriptures. Read the Psalms. Read Isaiah. Read the Gospels. If you, if you need another book, then pick up a good systematic theology book like Knowing God by J.I. Packer or The Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer or The Holiness of God by Sproul. Commit yourself to learning about Him, to diving deep into theology. If we want our worship to be about God, we need to know this God that we worship. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And yet God has revealed so much of Himself in His words. So, get into the Word. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, I, I would just remind you that a lost person can sing songs but they can't worship God. Don't pretend. This great God who loves you sent His Son to die on the cross for you. And He calls you to repent of your sins and to trust Him as Lord and Savior of your life. There's no worship until you do that. And I want to encourage you today, if you don't know him, um, that, to put your trust in Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk with you about that. Uh, I'm going to throw a little curveball. The tech people don't know, but that's all right. But the Connect card in front of your pew, uh, it says on there at the bottom, these are for like if you want to just reach out to a staff member and talk, because it says at the bottom you can check a box there would appreciate a contact from a minister. Uh, you can even add on there, I want to talk to somebody about baptism. I want to talk to somebody about following Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And uh, we will reach out to you and follow up. Of course, the other thing you could do is just come forward and start that conversation today uh, as we sing and close our service, which we need to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, for your word today, which is clear. Please help us to have hearts to hear it and to hear it in love 
and to give ourselves to knowing you as the great God that you are, that we can worship you as you've called us to in your word. And so be with us now even as we respond. Uh, May our responses be at your leading, and uh, may they be glorifying to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.